You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Professor Ronica Power, a bioarchaeologist and teacher. Ronica's research revolves around human skeletal and mummified remains from diverse populations across the world. Ronica's team made the cover of Nature for research that was named as one of the top 10 discoveries of 2016 by Archaeology magazine. In this episode, we chat about Ronica's very early interest and fascination with ancient Egyptian and other cultural artefacts associated with death. Ronica has a broad and quite amazing research portfolio. However, the focus of this episode is Ronica's multidisciplinary learning and teaching methods and her creative and innovative and inspired approaches to student assessment. Ronica uses a negotiated, student-centered process that involves different ways of telling stories, communicating with audiences, and sharing knowledge. That is, creative approaches to communication, learning, teaching, research, and problem solving. Students use digital and other technologies, including video, podcasting, infographics, hypermedia, and e-portfolios to create narratives, communicate their research findings, and get into the spirit of solving the wicked problems of the world. Ronica offers insights into the hidden and unexpected value of procrastination, failure, and assessments with zero grade weighting. We also explore the profound value of imagination, joining the dots, and making connections between people, disciplines, cultures, ideas, and methodologies when looking for and creating opportunities. Here's my conversation with Ronica Power. Thanks so much. <laughs> it's so nice to be talking to you, Ronica. Always a pleasure, Mark. We've troubleshot our technical issues over the various internet connections. And so Indeed. I'm glad that we've got this connection and this recording happening. I want to find out more about who, who you are. Where did you come from? What are you interested in up until this point in time? So... What, what say ye? Well, of course, being an archaeologist and historian, I need you to, I need to take you way back in time. Of course, I need to take you way back in time to, to where I think all of this began. And I, I think I can probably pinpoint that to when I was maybe about four years old or something like that, definitely before primary school. Um, but I remember, I've, I've told this story before, I remember lying on the floor of our family home in Northmead in the western suburbs of Sydney with my older brother, Ivan. And I remember looking at those ancient artefacts called encyclopedias that hardly anyone has these days. It's all online, of course, um, and thank goodness for that. But looking at those ancient relics of encyclopedias and flipping through to uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, of course, we came across the pyramids of Egypt, the incredible pyramids of Giza. 
And I remember looking at those and just being absolutely transfixed. I just couldn't believe that these extraordinary monumental structures that were thousands and thousands of years old were built by people with certainly not the same kinds of technologies that we have today, not the same kinds of understandings of science or engineering, but all of this was done by people thousands of years ago and all done really effectively for the purposes of commemorating the burial of a divine king, of a pharaoh. And I just was absolutely transfixed from that moment forward with Egypt and everything Egyptian. I just couldn't get enough of it, even from before going to primary school. And in tandem with that, I also, which is probably um, some may consider a little bit morbid, but certainly I think it's a healthy curiosity. From a very young age, I was really, really obsessed with death. I was absolutely really transfixed by this, what we call a biological imperative and understanding that everything that is alive at some point will die. And, you know, after burying so many pet canaries under the mulberry tree and being fascinated by the roadkill that we'd see on the side of the road when we'd go for trips to the mountains to see my uncle, um, and then really understanding through, obviously, family funerals here and there about what this biological imperative of death was all about. What is death and, and what, what happens to us when we die? What happens to our bodies? What happens to our energies, our personalities? What happens? And how do individuals, how do groups, how do cultures account for that biological imperative? How do they mediate that transition through culture and through ritual and through practices. And so these very complementary curiosities came together to form a, a passion that has really become my life, um, which is obviously, you know, has, has become what I do. But I can tell you that at that time, but certainly before I went to primary school and all the way through primary school and even all the way through high school and beyond, that I had no idea that what I do, my, my current job, even existed. I had no idea that you'd be able to combine these passions and to develop such a, a, a specific and bespoke area of research and teaching you know, so much of, um, of the, the processes that exist with regards to school tend to set people on a track um, towards traditional uh, occupations, towards traditional training and, and, um, and the, the, I suppose the, the reproduction of jobs in a workforce. But how can we combine different disciplines, how we can combine different passions to create new jobs? And after... Uh, a very circuitous route, um, which I should say involved my first career. Um, I didn't go straight to university after finishing high school. Very sadly, I was one of those um, far too many young people who was afflicted by glandular fever at the time of uh, my my later years of, of high school, year 11 and 12. Um, 
I was I was very unwell and and probably one of the, the the few university professors who actually can say that they never sat for the HSC exams, the the final high school finishing exams that we have here in New South Wales. Um, and I was I was very unwell and and very sadly wasn't able to go straight into to university. Um, but I, I I seized the opportunity gradually as I as I recovered to um, in, to embark on my first career, and that was business management. Uh, I actually had a, a, a full a, approximately ten years in business management, um, and particularly women's fashion retail. Before I eventually, at the tender age of around about twenty six, um, decided that the that the call. Of, uh, of Egypt and, and, and what has eventually become more cultures, the call of the ancient dead just became too strong for me to resist. Uh, and I walked away from a very high profile and very lucrative career in, um, in business management to become a student again um, and, uh, and, and, and give all of that, that salary and all of those opportunities away. And I can tell you, Mark, I have never looked back. Wow. Not for a moment. <laughs> so it is, it's by no means what we would call a traditional route, but I think um, increasingly there are, there are friends and colleagues of mine who are very keen to tell these stories of, um, of researchers, of academics, uh, of, of all sorts of professionals who didn't follow the beaten path who for various reasons, whether it be life circumstances, whether it be changes of mind, changes of direction, have not followed that very traditional uh, primary school, high school, university career pathway. And uh, I can say, you know, certainly at the outset of this, of this chat that I, I think that all of my experiences have actually really made me a better academic, a better teacher, a better researcher, a better communicator. So it's all about, you know, translating all of those experiences to, into something meaningful that can have a, a bigger application in the rest of your life. So I, what, when, when you were doing um, business management, I guess we kind of yeah. skipped from a, an enthusiastic or a four-year-old with an enthusiasm for Egypt and um, death uh, yes. And then with that's kind of, you know, did that peter out or did it just sort of end or, no, you know, was it always there? Always there. And so this is something that I, I do a, a lot of work with mentoring, as you know, and a lot of work with um, talking to, to high school students and primary school students and the occasional preschoolers as well about careers and about thinking about their futures. And I can tell you, often it's what you're doing when you procrastinate that can actually be the clue to what it is that can hold your passion and hold your attention for all of your life. And so, I can tell you, I, I was always watching documentaries, always reading books, always um, going to museums, always doing all of those things to engage with the, the ancient world and particularly the material past of the ancient world mm. and always curious about my, my particular interests in these, these imperatives surrounding the bio, biological and cultural implications of death. Well, what, uh, I guess with such a kind of, I can't think of the word, pronounced <laughs> interest, and then you, I'm imagining you as in women's fashion retail. And then yes. at what 
well, I guess just we've only we got about five minutes, I suppose. I, I explained that you know, I like to people on put people on the clock, but just in terms <laughs> of your, we, we've got a few minutes either way. But in terms of your that decision, you went back and did study. What what yes. happened between like what was the path from that point to now? Because you've done so from, much stuff. Yeah. So this is where I will say um, that my experiences in every aspect of my of my my previous life have borne fruit, and that is, I think that the path I would characterise as being that of an academic entrepreneur, that I have certainly gone through the, the, the pathways and the tracks that are available to um, all university students through curriculum, through uh, social networks, through um, certainly extracurricular activities. But I think that what has made the difference to me and certainly been somewhat of an accelerant in my career is that I see opportunities all around me like leaves on trees. And I think that it is my business background that actually enables me to characterise them, to identify them, and then to act upon them, to, 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 to seize them and convert them into academic experiences, either for myself, um, obviously through that career development phase, but then as time has gone on, to create them as opportunities and pathways for my, my students and my colleagues. And that involves joining dots and making connections that I think that might not be apparent or potentially available to others. And particularly considering that I have such an interdisciplinary research and teaching platform that I work from, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later, I'm able to make connections that are brand new and to create opportunities that really haven't been uh, addressed before. And parts of that, for example, involve, um, you know, the fact that I am officially as an archaeologist and, and historian, I'm involved in, um, in primarily in the humanities and the arts. But also because of my interdisciplinarity, I am a scientist. And so by joining all of these dots and making connections between people, ideas, methodologies, opportunities, I think that I've been able to, uh, to create spaces and to create excitement uh, that potentially uh, maybe produces pathways that haven't been tread before. So, so what are, can you give us just one uh, uh, an example of some of these dots you've joined up just for people that yeah. are not, maybe not familiar with academia not familiar with archaeology or you know just to sort of something that's been a a good one that you've enjoyed kind yeah. of creating well i i suppose the the best place to start with all of that is actually just to characterize the way that i would describe what i do and that is as a biocultural archaeologist and what a biocultural archaeologist does is I focus on data that is derived from the scientific study of archaeological human remains, so whether that be skeletons or mummies or parts thereof. 
I focus on that sort of medical, very, very scientific data, but I interpret that scientific data in conjunction with every other available aspect of the archaeological record, whether it be your traditional text, whether it be your objects, your artefacts, whether it be architecture, you know, the tombs themselves that these, that these people, that these bodies are, are, are found within or whether it's even ecofacts, part of the environment. I bring all of that data together and, and bring it into a, a much more holistic, much more personal narrative of individuals and groups from past populations that enables me, I think, to access a different kind of worldview than traditional history or traditional archaeology has done before. So what have you discovered? Like what's something that you discovered or something that you kind of, um, you know, all the dots are connected and you've gone, oh, look at that. Yeah, well, I think that um, one of the things that is uh, one of the most um, high-profile discoveries that I've been involved with has been the, the characterisation and description of a group of people who uh, were, were actually massacred on the ancient lake shores of uh, Lake Turkana in Kenya, around about 10,000 BP. And this is an extraordinary story and a, a wonderful representation of the importance of these kinds of really deep historical and archaeological narratives to speak to current issues like climate change. So these people were brutally killed on the, these ancient lake shores using a range of, uh, of, of different kinds of, of violent methods. Um, and we suspect that it is because of these um, resource scarcity that brought these groups into contact with each other and brought them to compete and fight and eventually kill for these resources. And it was this discovery that actually secured us the cover of nature in 2016 because this was the earliest known example of intergroup warfare that we have seen in history so far. Wow. So, of course, I've had some really extraordinary adventures across the world and, you know, the real beauty of working with the human body is that it does translate across cultures. And, of course, our research is really critically important to us as academics and that certainly has taken me to a lot of different places and working with a lot of different cultures. But at the end of the day, my bread and butter is here in Sydney. And of course, I do all of my research and teaching based at Macquarie University here in Sydney. And I try and integrate all of my research into my teaching, but also try to push the boundaries of what we do as historians, as archaeologists and scientists to include different kinds of narratives. And I think that this is where we can chat about my digital work, my digital work, my digital-led teaching um, that's really changing the ways that students in the arts and humanities are sharing their own knowledge and their own experiences of their learning. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So tell us more about these different narratives and 
working digitally. What does working digitally mean, even? Yeah, so obviously uh, in the business of higher education, uh, we are interested in teaching and we're interested in training our students to, you know, attain the particular skill sets that are required for our discipline and also to assess them on giving them the opportunities to demonstrate how they are learning and what they are learning. And traditionally in the arts and humanities, as I'm sure you and your listeners would be aware, that this has very much been a a heavily essay and um, report-based agenda or strategy for assessment. And this is fantastic and it it is absolutely the backbone of the the arts and humanities, uh, you know, assessment protocol. However, I think that in the, 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 you know, we're in 2020, about to hit into 2021, and thinking about whether or not there are other skills and attributes that our students will need and that work, that employers will be interested in as they enter the workforce. I, I, I just want to I just want to interrupt you for just a second. You you're meaning that the general when people have an assessment in arts and humanities, it used to be or usually it's an essay of some sort. But you're saying that there's lots of other opportunities to assess students. Indeed, there yeah. are so many different ways that we can assess students, and and really importantly, what I'm interested in as an educator uh, is to create different kinds of opportunities that enable students with different kinds of skills and attributes to shine and to and to show that there are more than more than just one way of sharing knowledge and connecting with an audience whether that audience is the the reader the assessor or whether the audience is on a, a much a much different scale you know for example their peers or even the general public and so uh, while, you know, as I've said, the, the traditional written modes of assessment are very, very imp- still very, very important, why can't we uh, provide students with the opportunity, for example, to talk about their learning, to, to respond to content using, for example, media such as digital video? Why not get them to create a podcast? Why not get them to create a a poster infographic or a piece of hypermedia? If we're asking them to reflect their learning, there are many more ways that they can do that other than just that fundamental foundational mode of traditional academic text. So so in, in that realm, is there any pushback? So I would I would push back against the idea of it being pushed back because I'm an eternal optimist, as you know, Mark. And yes. I think that what what we're working with here is an opportunity to work also alongside our colleagues to um, to to show just how many opportunities there are for digital humanities as a a really a really um, appropriate and uh, and and very oh uh, the, the potential of this mode of, of assessment is is just a, a only limited by the the imagination and the capabilities of our students. And of course, uh, as I've discovered this year, the kinds of infrastructure that are involved in in higher education that can potentially, if there are any obstacles, I would say that it's more in the infrastructure than in the the outlook. We we experienced Um, some of those obstacles today with our, you know. Yes, indeed we 
have, indeed we have. Um, so I've spoken about uh, the opportunity to, um, to, let's say, calibrate with colleagues about the opportunities and the, the potentials of these kinds of assessments. Um, but what I will say is that of paramount importance to me is actually the student experience. How do the students feel about this? What do the students think about this? And, and I can, I'm now operating off um, two years of data of, uh, of transforming the assessment strategies of particularly one of my courses, but now this year we've, we've brought another one online. But the, the laboratory, as it were, that, that myself and my, my very dear colleagues and my extraordinary teaching team are operating in is a wonderful unit of study. It's a, a second year undergraduate level called the Archaeology of Death and Burial. Of, and of that course, particularly, of course it of is course called it, that. <laughs> of course it is. And that particular unit of study is, is absolutely extraordinary because it, it really showcases across the entirety of the modern human experience the way that different individuals and groups, the way that different cultures have mediated that biological imperative of death through culture. And as that biological imperative that we all will face what better way to get students to engage than to give them an enormous scope and platform from which they can respond to what are effectively really quite personal and often emotional reflections of their learning. So, so this, from, from my perspective, this sounds like it's brimming with interest. It's really interesting, really engaging. What, what are the, how do the students respond when you float this, these ideas out to them? So the wonderful thing, the only indicator I have, for, certainly for the, the uptake, is enrolments. And what I can say is, is the first year we offered this digital strategy was last year and we had around about 47 students enrolled in the class. Due to word of mouth, and I know that this is the case because obviously we've done this through, um, through both a formal and informal survey, we doubled our enrolments year on year. We had just under 100 students enroll in this course because of the recommendation that their peers had given them. So, although at first the idea of working with a completely new mode of assessment and particularly of working with digital technologies can be confronting, can be intimidating, with the right sort of environment, with the right sort of uh, curriculum and schedule, and of course with the right sort of teachers, that becomes a safe space where play and experimentation and exploration are welcome and, in fact, endorsed so what 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 i agree with what what you you're um explaining what what are some of these uh ideal contexts or teaching approaches like what what makes for a conduce what's conducive to getting success in this sort of territory well i would say for us um there's a, a few different approaches that we take uh certainly um creating a safe space in some contexts where we have uh assessment requirements that have zero grade weighting so they're required <laughs> to what, what, what does that mean i yes, you were going to answer yeah they're required to submit something but it is worth zero grades 
so they can play, they can experiment, and they can fail, which is such a wonderful opportunity, a first attempt in learning. And they absolutely fly from that platform. They can experiment with different technologies, with different modalities, without there being an impact on their final result. And that has been really successful for us. We also scaffold the digital learning experience by, as they are growing in confidence and competence, to offer um, several much smaller weighted assessment tasks so they can build their muscles, their creative and their digital and their communicative muscles over time, um, and then eventually building up to bringing it all together in a context of an e-portfolio where they can actually show and celebrate their development and their learning across an entire semester. Sounds, sounds fantastic. Um, I, I just want to, sorry, I, we've got a bit of a connection problem with the um, online. The NBN. The NBN. <laughs> I, that sounds fantastic. However, I want to just go back a little bit because uh, I just wanted to clarify, mainly for the audience, what are different modalities, what is scaffolding, sure. and what is an e-portfolio? Oh, good stuff. Okay. So we'll take it from the top. So our different digital modalities that we offer, and there are, um, again, only limited by my classes and my audience and your audience's imaginations, we offer training in podcasting, we offer training in the development of infographic uh, modes of communication. And so infographics obviously being this um, uh, combination of uh, visual uh, images and text. And we offer training in, uh, in vid video production and also in hypermedia production. So this could be anything from a website or, um, you know, uh, blogs or, or other different ways of, of producing hypermedia text. Mm. However, we also open um, to negotiation. Everything in our, in our unit is, is negotiated. It's a very important part of what we do and a really important strategy to get students involved. We always approach them as partners in their learning and, and, and uh, co-creators in their learning. And um, we, uh, we also uh, offer other opportunities for them to create and contribute. So, for example, we had comic strips original artworks created we had um we had poetry submitted so lots of different modalities can can be uh, approached and provided that you have a, a an assessment structure or a rubric that addresses <laughs> i like a rubric i love a rubric yeah, what's a rubric <laughs> <laughs> a rubric so providing students with very very clear ideas about the components that are expected or that will be evaluated in their in their assessment task um, and and uh, and showing across the spectrum of the the grade evaluation obviously in the case of of our approach you've got everything from that 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 fail all the way through to a, a pass and up to a high distinction what those criteria look like for the students so they've got something very um, concrete that they can work towards depending on the kinds of outcomes that they might like to achieve. Yep. So we do try to create that. Um, so our, our different modalities are, again, we, we've got some suggestions and we've got some training in place, but they are really only limited by what our students 
um, uh, and that can imagine, or indeed what they what they would like to to experiment with. So it's you've it's, asked about. Oh yep. You've asked about portfolio. Oh, hang on, and hang so on, wait, hang on a minute. We got to go back. Sure. I, 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 so it's not a free for all. It's they are actually guided by things like a rubric Indeed. and a scaffold. Indeed. What is this scaffold Indeed. you speak of? So this this scaffolding that we speak of is an approach that um, that that takes students through a a new um, skill set or a, a new task but in a staged process that that builds one on top of the other much like you might want to 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 build a house or to to build any kind of structure to do that in a in a safe way to do that in a way that um, that ensures that the that the um, building is sound you put a scaffold around it and you build it up from the from the ground up and that's what we like to do with our students so ensuring that they have um, uh, guides that are specifically created for them um, by my very dear colleague uh, and very dear friend who you also know very well, Beverly Miles. Um, Hooray! Hooray yes, for Beverly. <laughs> the one and only superstar. The one and only superstar. We um we create uh, guides for them to to work through in detail um, that takes them through all of the different components of what does it mean to create a po podcast and and not only what it means to create a podcast but how do you do that in a way that responds to the requirements of academic assessment so you know we we are still asking students to be able to demonstrate that they've can they've consulted these primary sources these secondary sources oh, that yes. are the foundation. Yeah, the foundations of, um, of of the building blocks of knowledge of scholarly knowledge. So we we've been able to um, uh, to create these these guides that that take them through this in a stage process that teach them how they can acknowledge and um, and attribute uh, in in those kinds of digital landscapes um, where they would otherwise reference in a written text. So ensuring that copyright is um, acknowledged, ensuring that um, all of the right kinds of protocols are adhered to, because of course, plagiarism is just as much as an of an issue in the digital space as it is in a in traditional academic text. So mm -hmm. we we are we are certainly trying and um, and also understanding that this is a this is a, a, a growing experience for for us as teachers. Uh, and we expect that we'll be able to to build these scaffolds year on year, um, but definitely really trying to to create that kind of intellectual infrastructure for our students, even if the um, the other other modes of in infrastructure such as the um, the the online learning templates or the the online learning um, sites uh, aren't quite up to speed with where we're at through assessment just yet. And and just finally, what are, what are these e-portfolios that you mentioned? Yeah, so an e-portfolio is almost like uh, the way that an artist would, would share a portfolio of their work. So an e-portfolio brings together as, as one um, all of the different assessments that the student has created throughout the year, so all throughout the semester in this particular case. So using the archaeology of death and burial as an example, uh, the, the digital multimodal assessment strategy uh, required them to complete five reflection tasks, all of a digital 
type throughout the course of the unit alongside individual and group video projects that were also done in, in collaboration with my uh, fantastic um, teacher uh, and, uh, and, and partner in teaching, um, Michael Rampey, who is also another fantastic, very, very experienced um, uh, digital video teacher working with us at Macquarie University. So we bring all of these, uh, these pieces together and so the students could effectively, if they wished, uh, be able to house them, be able to share them online, uh, uh, obviously according to the right copyright procedures having taken place, uh, and also to be able to prospectively show them to future employers as demonstrable examples of their capacities and abilities to communicate across different modes of expression. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So it's a long way from ancient Egypt uh, and the pyramids in our current digital tech, we're surrounded by digital technology. I guess one of the questions is why would you introduce all these techniques and approaches? What's, what, why wouldn't they just um, um, continue doing doing things in a traditional way? What what are the advantages, or like what's the big? What uh, I guess the, the question is why, <laughs> why? Yeah, yeah, and and that, that's a great question, and and something that uh, that I suppose the answer would different would be different every time I I, I would offer it, um, and and certainly is is something that I'm reflecting on now, having finished another session of teaching um, and particularly in teaching in a pandemic and teaching in a, a in a way in a modality that we have never had to do before as teachers and i will say that the majority of that has been in the online space and we have been asked as teachers to uh, create learning experiences for our students that we have never done before and so in a way, it's a lovely way to, to parallel that experience, but also to reflect what the realities of a modern workplace is, what a modern community is, and uh, where academia and scholarly communication and even just storytelling, just storytelling in and of itself was very much in the printed media, in the traditional text media but it's just not like that anymore. And for me, the end goal is to be able to facilitate my students to be able to communicate with almost anyone on any kind of platform and through all of them, through my under just under 100 students, if I'm facilitating each of them to be able to communicate their learning and to be able to communicate not just their learning per se, but they're learning about these fundamental aspects of the human experience, death, burial, culture, history. These are the currency of what it means to be human. So if I can facilitate every one of those almost 100 students to tell their stories in four or five different ways 
Imagine the opportunity for connection that we have with our community. Imagine the opportunity to be able to share that knowledge and, and that extraordinary cross-cultural experience. Obviously, through all of this, the sensibility is, is that we as humans, regardless of where or when we come from, we have so much more in common that we do different. And so to be able to facilitate them to tell those stories across platforms is actually a really meaningful opportunity for social change. But what's also a meaningful opportunity for social change with our students is to be able to, in a very safe and negotiated way, to take them out of their intellectual and their skills-based comfort zones, to be able to actually push them and guide them to do things, to create things that they've never done before, that they've never tried before. And the wonderful thing about this experience and particularly, you know, through this year and obviously the challenges of uh, learning and, and teaching in a pandemic, I've had students come up to me and talk about the importance of the disruption of that comfort zone and to have shepherded them through an experience of creating knowledge objects, these reusable learning objects that they would never have anticipated that they would have done in an arts and humanities degree. And that's a really, really special thing. Uh, and the, the, the benefits of that are not only the, the, the communication and, and wide-scale connection benefits that I've, that I've mentioned before, but also the implications that that has for their broader lives. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of almost uh, caution um, in, in working and, and teaching with young people these days, but real life actually often throws you a bit of a, of a, of a, of a, of a blinder. Real life often throws you curly, wicked problems. And what I'm hoping to do in walking in the, the footsteps of the extraordinary Sir Ken Robinson, uh, who very sadly we lost this year. Yeah. Hmm. To, to actually give them a kind of creative literacy, to build on the kinds of literacy that they already have and that they can access in every other aspect of their learning, but to actually facilitate with them, grow with them a kind of creative literacy that enables them to solve the wicked problems that we are facing in today's world and to be able to communicate across cultures and across platforms this is the kind of broader, much more uh, meaningful kind of objective that I'm looking to achieve in my teaching and my, and my research. How are the students kind of, like, do they wash around with it and generally, I mean, I guess they're kind of, there's a diversity within the, the student cohort, but do they, yes. generally, are they, what, how do they respond, like when they've gone through the process, um, I can only imagine they would see it as a really positive thing for their, for well, their own I'm, development. Yeah, certainly uh, within, uh, within a cohort of around about 100 students, you're going to have a, a, a diverse array of responses as well. And there will be those who will um, say that they hope that they never have to do it again. <laughs> but I can report the majority do definitely say um, 
that they loved it. And we, you will have that kind of response as, as any, as any teacher of any level knows, um, any, any requirement will be met with, um, the inevitable one or two that, that really, really didn't, didn't enjoy the experience or, or felt that the experience didn't resonate with them. Um, but the, the overwhelming majority in this case really, really, um, really resonates with them very, very well. And, and, and one thing that I should mention um, is uh, I, I said at the, the at the top of our conversation that I what what excites me about this is is kind of upending that academic pyramid that that tends to actually cater for and reproduce a kind of learner that we have been doing for centuries. And as Sir Ken would say, there are so many different kinds of literacies and if we're only testing, if we're only assessing for one kind of literacy, then that is what we are going to get. That is what we're going to get. And I think that um, what this mode of assessment and this kind of assessment strategy does is it creates opportunities for different kinds of learners to shine. And in the first class, the first class, the first week of this very, very challenging term, I had a student who uh, very publicly shared with the class that she uh, was on the autism spectrum and that she actually finds it really difficult to express herself and to connect due to her, due to her own circumstances in the written word. And what she said was, is that she was so grateful for the fact that this particular assessment strategy enables her to communicate in ways that make her shine. And I can tell you that she led her group to producing their group video project where they produced a puppet show to talk about death and burial practices in uh, ancient, um, ancient Greek culture, particularly Minoans and Mycenaeans. Who would have thought that we would be able to facilitate a space where students are able to communicate their knowledge via the processes of puppetry? And it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. And they achieved their, their learning outcomes perfectly. And this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. We are really limiting ourselves by only creating one modality for which our students can talk about their learning. Mm. Um, and this is what excites me about this. And uh, who knows? I, I think that... Um, that that we may have uh, future future stars of um, of research communication of uh, of public communication of storytelling um, historic historians archaeologists scientists all engaging with these very very different modes of communication um, uh, by enrolling in these units with with us at Macquarie. Yeah, I guess it's on reflection. It is. Um I guess it underscores the importance of it's almost like closing the loop where when that the research is disseminated to an audience or you know it's yes. uh, otherwise uh, what's the point it doesn't actually exactly and I think that this is one of the one of the things that we're that we are facing in academia as a whole is that we we actually have a level of accountability to the community um, to really to really show and to tell why what we are doing is important. Why does it matter? Why should the community, why should the government continue to support us? 
And not everybody is going to read a wonderful paper, I'm sure beautifully produced, but published in an academic journal that most people probably wouldn't even have access to through their public library or through obviously their, their own resources. Mm. So what I'm proposing is a way that we can actually share and tell stories and really articulate meaning about what we do in a much more accessible way. Yeah, so do there, any of your students, I, I guess it, it's important to state that the it's not just, uh, say, a puppet show uh, for entertainment. It actually it has the core knowledge embedded in it, like a, as evidenced Absolutely. by the, the, the rubric. The Absolutely. And so they are, they are caused, they're called to articulate the knowledge that they would otherwise do in a traditional academic text, but through a completely different medium. Mm. And in its own way, that's just as if not more challenging than doing it the way that they've always been done. It really requires them to think laterally, to think creatively. How do I express this by a, by, a, by a podcast? How do I express this by a video? How do I express this? Here's a good um, question. I just thought of a good question. Can you teach yeah. creativity? Well, this is the thing. I think that we can, we can certainly facilitate the space that will enable students to access that. And I think that what I have learned through my experiences of both research and teaching over the world over the years is that extraordinary things can happen when you make space for it, when you facilitate it, when you give permission to try and to fail, that's where real creativity comes from. That, that could be a good ending, actually, Ronica. Are you happy with, <laughs> if you, if, I like the, um, it, it kind of packaged all that, profound uh, aspects into a, a short little sentence. But are, are you happy? Have you got more to kind of tell us before we head off? Or Because I'm happy. I was happy with that ending. You're, you are the boss. You okay. are the boss. And uh, I trust your experience uh, and your wisdom as always, Mark. Okay. Thank you. I, what I've found in the past with these sort of things is I've I've asked the person to restate something, and then almost one hundred percent of the time I go with the initial take, like the the kind of. So I reckon that we might be done. You've got three okay. minutes and ten <laughs> seconds up your sleeve, but I'm just going to pause. Oh, just press done. So yeah. So what? This is that. That's it. It's in the bag, and I I won't be able to. <laughs> check the recording until I press stop, as you probably know with Zoom. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. But I just, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you about this. Um, you know, you are one of, as, as Beverly and I always say, we always ask the question, what would the parry do? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, this is, this is such a wonderful opportunity to, um, to, to, you know, riff ideas to, to jam ideas and workshop ideas. And I, I just, I wish that we could do more of it. Um, I think that we are just getting started with the oh, possibilities yeah. of digital literacy. And um, 
And I think that the the more that we do this, um, I, I think that the, the the greater its significance will be realised in the in the particularly in the tertiary sphere for um, uh, arts and humanities. Um, you know, digital humanities are absolutely exponentially on the rise. Um, I'm obviously really uh, conscious and cognizant that our colleagues in in media studies have been doing this kind of thing for time eternal. And we've got a great deal to learn from them and to collaborate with them. Uh, but uh, for those newbies like us, you know, this what we're doing in our, you know, Department of History and Archaeology is uh, is a first time. And, you know, we, we are going through uncharted waters. We are walking through um, territories that we've never been in before. And, and we are just so grateful to our students because they provide us with the, with the latitude and with the landscape to be able to try these learning methodologies and strategies and even give us the opportunity to fail. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of courage and there's a lot of risk that that is um, uh, wrapped up in all of that. So, I'm really grateful to obviously my teaching team. I've mentioned uh, Beverly Miles, of course, and Michael Rampey, but also a huge shout out to Jacinta Carruthers and to Mary Hartley, who have just been extraordinary through all of these processes and and just give me the courage to just charge forward and to try new things and to see what works, see what doesn't, and eventually end up further than we were before. So I really want to encourage my fellow teachers to really give it a go and give themselves permission for this to be something that they grow with and that grows with them, that they can try one year and realise, okay, I, I did that well, I didn't do that so well, this is what I'm going to do differently next year. It's a wonderful opportunity for, for reflective teaching um, and really, really important that people give themselves permission to not be perfect. Give it a go. Give it a go and you and your students and your learning will grow. We've got a third possible ending now. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, it's, I'm, really, I'm really passionate about that. You know, yeah, no, I can tell. I, I, people are, they, they, they're cursed and they're immobilised by perfection. And it is something that is, I think, really undermining the opportunity and the, 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 the possibilities of education. You know, we, we encourage our students to try. So why don't we encourage ourselves to do the same thing? Why don't we give ourselves the same permission to try and to fail and to learn and to try again? If anything, that makes us more accessible. If anything, that makes us more human. And that can only be a good thing. In this episode, I chatted with Ronica Power, a bioarchaeologist and teacher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Ronica's extensive research profile, plus other information about using creative approaches in learning and teaching. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.